Good morning, everyone. Welcome back. I'm so excited this morning because I'm launching NicoBarraza.com. I'll throw a link in the description. This is the new website I built for my coaching business. I would absolutely love the opportunity to work with you. If y'all are interested, I am currently taking on new clients from ages 13 and up, individuals, couples, and athletes. I would absolutely love to work with young athletes. Uh, and I'm really passionate about this. It's something I think I'm extremely talented at, and I would absolutely love to work with any of you out there. So if you're interested or if you just want to poke around the site and peruse, I'm going to throw a link in the description. Again, it's nicobarraza.com, just my name, simple as that. And I appreciate you uh, for checking it out and then giving me any feedback if you want. So this week's guest is Miss Addie Bracy. I've known Addie for about six or seven years now. She's been a pro ultra runner for a while. Uh, for various companies, and she came from a very distinctive collegiate running background. She ran at North Carolina, and they have a huge, huge program as far as um, how good they are in track and field and cross country. And Addie just published a book, Mental Training for Ultra Running, your psychological skills guide book for ultra success. And although this book is really specifically tailored to people in the endurance world, it kind of applies to anybody out there that has a pulse. Um, it's it's an incredible read, and uh, I highly recommend checking it out. I'll throw a link to that in the description. Um, Addie and I get into a lot of stuff from identity, crisis as an athlete, to finding your why, to defining yourself through your sport and how that's really dangerous, um, through struggling with food and eating disorders, uh, specifically in endurance sports, and ultimately how she um, has come to be the person she is today, which is a person that really is is still highly competitive, but out there for herself and for fun rather than for to appease others or to get some notoriety. Um, it's interesting because when we recorded this, this is before the uh, there was a 100-mile race in Steamboat Springs, the Run Rabbit 100-miler. It's a really competitive race, a uh, high prize purse. And uh, the race director had written a sort of op-ed editorial about... Um, the runners that were running and in it he sort of called Addie out saying that this was her make or break race right for career or something and we talk about this a little bit in the in the episode she kind of chuckled and she's just like you know this guy has no business saying this is my make or break race like I'm out here to enjoy myself obviously I'm gonna be competitive but whether I win or not it's not gonna define who I am as a runner and I love that perspective and interestingly enough Addie went out and absolutely crushed the race she won I believe she was sixth or seventh overall um and uh, yeah, I mean, just super proud of, of her performance and who she is and how she carries herself. It's uh, obvious that people in this sport can get very highly addicted to their results and their results and elitism tend to define who they are. And we end up idolizing people and worshiping people in that way. And I got to say, I really respect Addie for, um, you know, holding a banner a little bit higher, you know, that she's a human being first and foremost. She works with a lot of athletes in her own right. Um, she's a psychologist by training, sort of. Um, focusing on athletes and athletic performance. And I really appreciate her coming on. We have a, a great show for you, and I hope you all enjoy it. And again, if you want to check out the new website, if you want to sign up for some coaching, nicobarraza.com, I'd absolutely love to work with any of you. If you have a young athlete, I would love to work with them, honestly. Like I, I remember when I was between the ages of 12 and 15, it was like pivotal for my mental development. And I had some really shitty coaches around that time that honestly shouldn't have been coaching young minds and young men. And uh, that sort of changed and morphed the way I was viewing myself interact with the game, specifically the game of baseball, which was like my, you know, my sport growing up. Um, and I think there's a lot of different tools and approaches that we can give young people to help them believe in themselves to excel, not only at a sport, but in life as well, too. And a lot of times they don't get that from their parents or their actual coaches. And that's where I would love to lend a hand and lend my mind and um, connect with with that demographic as well, too. Um, and again, I'm also seeing individuals and couples of all ages. And I'm really excited to get this underway and work with everybody. Thank you all for being here. Without further ado, Addie Bracey. Awesome. Well, Addie, thank you so much for joining me on the Star of the Ego Feed the Soul podcast. Um, I've known you for a while now because you're a professional ultra runner and I met you in the ultra running world because um, you're awesome and you've done some amazing things as an athlete. But uh, even more so, you have a sort of a background in um, psychology and a background in working with athletes and working with a whole different host of 
behavioral things. And we're going to talk about a lot of those today. And you just launched a new book um, that I'd love to get into as well, too. So um, like with everyone on the show, I just would love for you to introduce yourself and give us a little background on how you became uh, the amazing human being you are today and, and what you do in the world. Yeah. Um, yeah. Thanks for the intro and for having me. Um, yeah, I guess most recently over the last couple of years, I've um, really kind of gone uh, like headfirst into the world of sports psychology. Um, I'm a lifelong athlete. Yeah, I ran in high school, ran at North Carolina, did some years on the road and track after that. And then, yeah, now do ultras and trail stuff. And um, through that time as an athlete, just like really noticed this, this uh, common approach of like trying to separate emotions and the mental side from like physical performance. And it didn't work for me and it didn't work for a lot of athletes that I was coaching at the time. So yeah, I kind of found myself um, really curious about learning more about the field and went back to grad school a couple years ago um, and then have, yeah, kind of dedicated most of my professional time to understanding human behavior and psychology and how the brain works in general and then how that shows up uh, in everyday life, honestly, but then also in the performance setting. So um, yeah, I still compete. I still enjoy being out there, um, challenging myself, tackling my own mental and emotional challenges. But uh I really enjoy the work I do and I've been fortunate to work with some really, really awesome athletes in a lot of different sports and keeps me learning too. So awesome. And by the way, I mean, people that don't know, like, you know, UNC, the University of North Carolina has a really amazing distance program. And so that just speaks to, you know, where you are as an athlete, not to mention their academics are great too. Um, can you talk a little bit about what sort of was the primary driver for you to get into this work. I imagine it's your own personal experience, you know, and we talked about over the phone a little bit before this about identity and about, you know, the sort of understanding of success and of the pursuit of achievement and how that, you know, um, a lot of times runs our psyche and it's really hard to coexist with like a sense of self outside of sport, a sense of self outside of the workplace, you know, like who are we if we, if we didn't do these things, right. Um, how did you get propelled to do this work and to work with athletes and to get into sports psychology? Yeah. You know, I obviously had multiple times in my career that I could highlight more psychological things that were impacting my performance in college. It was a lot of like pressure, stress, anxiety around that. Um, there was times post-college when I had like some really serious things going on in my personal life that understand understandably were infiltrating into my performance, but had a coach that was like, you need to leave that stuff before you come to the track, which is not possible. So, you know, I was trying to like push that out. Uh, and then I think what really was like rock bottom, I guess, was, um, I, yeah, I did 10 years of, of track and roads post collegiately. And most of those 10 years, I was always getting better. Um, and then I didn't for like two or three years and I was 30, 31, um, obviously maybe at the tail end of my career. And I had that first like confrontation with my identity that you were just talking about of like, oh, wow, like I can actually taste the end of at least my speedy days. And it was really hard as soon as I stopped, as soon as I started to like acknowledge that and recognize that my, my results went down even more. Um, and just how difficult it was for me to cope with the poor performances. And then, and then how much that like very dramatically impacted my self-worth, my identity, my feeling of like relevance in the world, you know, as an athlete, you dedicate your whole self to this thing that I've been doing for 20 years. And then all of a sudden it was presented to me that that wasn't going to be lasting much longer. And it was like an identity crisis and, and yeah, I didn't handle it well and, and performance wasn't good. And I started to resent the sport and it was my own like experience with that, that sought me to, to seek help in this area. And then I actually kind of had a challenge finding someone that I felt like understood what I was going through that also wasn't $400 an hour. <laughs> it just wasn't right. an accessible resource. It's like a resource that seemed like it was, um, sports psychology, at least at the, with the people that I felt like could really help me. It was, it, it wasn't something that I felt like it was uh, accessible to me. So I think that was when I was, you know, I live in the Boulder, Denver area and had been in coaching for a long time and kind of recognized like, man, I'm one of like many good coaches in this area, but what doesn't exist in this area is, is somebody to help with this side that's um, available, that has the experience and knowledge has been through it. Not that that's a requirement, but for me, it helps, you know, to think of somebody that maybe understood what I'd gone through. Um, and was affordable and accessible and, um, like was a resource that I had access to. So I decided to try to be that resource, at least, um, an option for people. And yeah, I think it was my own, my own reconciliation with like, wow, I don't have this emotional and mental side tied up the way I need to. And I want to help other people like confront that. 
Yeah, I think it's courageous you you speak on that because I feel like a lot of and we can focus on sort of distance running because that that attracts I think a very certain psyche. You know, you can look at the athletes across the spectrum of like sprinting and, and power sports and baseball and basketball and football, but something with endurance athletes, there's just something that attracts people um, <clears throat> to an innate amount of suffering, right? And and I think it attracts, especially at the elite level, uh, a very certain personality. You know, and of course I can't generalize everyone, but I just see within my peers, you know, when I look in the eyes, like there's a lot of people have a lot of stuff they're probably running from, you know, and they probably self-medicate through, you know, um, just training over and over again. And part of the sort of reciprocation of that self-medicating is the performance, right? If you win, if you're on, if you win, you know, races after race, you get little dopamine releases and that's been scientifically shown to release more testosterone too. And it's sort of this like self-fulfilling thing where it does increase your well-being, your health a little bit on a base level. But as soon as you lose that, you know, everything disappears and you are left with the emotional state in which you started the activity if you haven't done any work during it, right? And I think that's something I appreciate about your work so much is because, you know, me being an athlete that was, you know, coming out of playing baseball in college and I randomly fell into ultra running, my body had to change. I wasn't a D1 runner like you were. I was playing baseball and volleyball, so way different body type. When I found the ultra running, you know, I had some success with it. I got so obsessed and I was just like, oh man, it's just feeding. It was really feeding my ego in a sense because I was like, this is awesome. Like I want to do this full time. I get to travel and run these beautiful mountains and there's phenomenal, great human beings in the sport. And that was a huge part of it, the community. But I think in, in my younger years, um, honestly, the majority of my, my career, I was really focused on performance and my performance, as you said, was um, intertwined with my identity as a human being and as a man. So if I, w- if I was training a ton and, and you know how it is, you get, you're exhausted and you're consistently like, it's so much people that don't do this. I think at this level, like it's really hard to relate because you're really just like, I mean, we're talking three to four hours a day, if not more. And you're so structured in your head and you're, you're pairing that with work. Most people have to work full time. You know, rarely do you get to do this, only this full time. And then of course you bring in relationships and, and family and all these other things that life brings, right? And for me, I found myself like really throwing so much into ultra running and endurance sports that I was losing all these other pieces of my life, you know, because I wasn't giving them the attention and the love that they deserved for me. And because of that, I noticed like when I did perform well, I would feel awesome, you know, and I feel great. Oh, I had a great race today or whatnot. And it would validate me, but I would also feel a giant sense of loneliness and a giant sense of disconnection because it's super interesting because I feel like the most fit I've ever been, and and I, I think I can do this in a healthy way now, but the most fit I've ever been, I think I've been the most lonely and the most detached from like my purpose or from who I am or from who I want to be. You know, I think I've probably been the most imbalanced hormonally, you know, um, and I'd love for you to elaborate on that. Like, you know, that, that seems to be a, a theme with a lot of athletes. And I feel like in, in Western culture and our modern society, we really, um, sort of celebrate the sort of epitome of athletic performance. Right. And especially if we look at, you know, D one runners, you know, as, as a little kid, when you were growing up, you were probably watching, you know, certain people, you know, at the U of O or at different, at different schools race and run. And you're like, I need to probably look like that body type. I need to run like that. I need to eat like that to be like that. Cause we idolize. Do you think that like idolization sort of plays a key role in are how, how we like seek to identify ourselves as human beings through athletics, or do you think it's something else? You think it's something from childhood that we like, you know, have to have, like, where where do you think that comes from? Like that drive to be like, Oh, I want to be, you know, the best, um, so strongly that it sort of separates our surface self from our deep self. Meaning we kind of lose a piece of ourselves. We, we, we disconnect. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I, as soon as you said that, I was thinking about, and I'm hesitant to say this because I don't want to throw him under the bus. My dad has been like probably the most influential person in my running career. He was a huge runner. He was like a running fan growing up. He got me into the sport very young. I don't think I would have reached the level I did if I didn't start when I was like six years old and I love it now. So obviously he did a good job for the fact that I'm still running at 35, but I remember a very specific conversation with him when I was in high school and it was, that was when I started to get like pretty good. And was, he was having me do a workout before school. It was like five in the morning, dark outside. And I was like complaining, you know, I'm like 16 years old. Like, why do I have to be up this early? And I remember him saying to me, it's lonely at the top. And I like, 
held on to that for years and was like, yeah, you're right. It is lonely at the top. And in order, so my, my, my question or answering your question is like, I think it probably comes from somewhere differently for everyone, but it is that similar message of like, this is what it feels like to be the best. And so for the next 15 years, I had like a correlation between training my butt off and to be the best I can be means nothing else matters. Like I'm sacrificing friendships. I'm going to miss holidays. I'm going to skip important family events or friend events to race. And I did that until recently, until probably six or seven years ago, where that's how I define success was I'm not driven enough and I don't care enough unless I'm willing to give everything else up that's important. And I believed that. And so I think you're right. I think a lot of it was also seeing that, like being told that by someone influential. My dad approached his career that way. And that's why he's crushed his own career. That's how I've seen other athletes be. And it's kind of just like ingrained in us that those things that's what it means. And I remember having this like, rec- like come to Jesus moment a couple of years ago of like, wow, I have put so much stock in this one piece of my identity. And you're right. What the highs are so high. Like when you're on and you perform well, it is, it feels so good, but the lows are like unbearable and the lows are, you know, I have been really lonely at times, but, but I normalized that. That was like, I thought I was supposed to feel that way. Um, and so I've done a, a lot of work over the last couple of years And it's actually the same exact conversation that I have with every new client that I work with about values and understanding that I'm multidimensional. Running is important to me, and it's something that I put a heck of a lot of time into, but I'm also um, a partner sometimes. I'm also a friend. I'm a daughter. I'm a sister. I'm a practitioner. Like There's other things. And so I was realizing that every time something else in my life came up that was maybe wanting my attention, I thought it was what I was supposed to do to push it away, but in reality... Now I see those moments as like, if I, you know, have to miss a race, which I did for a wedding, or if I have to miss training for a couple of days to go on a family vacation, like I do that willingly because now I don't see that as me not being committed. I don't see it as me not being willing to, to be lonely, to perform the best. I see it as me investing in another value that's important and mm-hmm. equally as important. And now the highs still feel great and the lows are completely fine because it's like, well, you know, I put everything I could into it, but I have all this other stuff to to fall back on. And I have, and I just feel richer in general. But the funny thing is, and I don't know if you've experienced this is I actually have performed better too. So it's not like my performance is leveled out and I'm like, well, that's fine because I'm more balanced. Like, no, I actually have raced better and performed better at the same time, which seems like counterintuitive, but I don't know. That's just something I wish I knew 10 years ago or 12 years ago. I think specifically endurance sports and probably most sports, but there's something to be said for your, your mental state and where you're at. You know, you can be, you can be tough and shrug your shoulders and power through the training and be lonely as much as you want, but that lasts for a certain amount of years, right? You might have some success, but eventually all humans, we, we crave connection. And if you're just running and it's lonely at the top and you're following that philosophy, that loneliness, I think is going to take away from your physical, your, your emotional health, you know, and you probably won't perform as, as well as you could. Cause we, you know, we, I think that's a component of, of being a, a healthy human being is connection. And when you brought up your high school um, conversation with your dad, it, it made me think of a Steve Prefontaine quote, which I'm sure, you know, and he says, you know, to give anything less than your best is to sacrifice the gift. And, you know, this is a, this is a man that's, that's idolized in the track and field community. Right. And, and obviously he had his own set, I'm sure as a psychologist, you can break down Prefontaine's psyche, but you know, he had his own set of, of things too, given his background as childhood. But, you know, it's, it's interesting because with that quote, it's like, I agree and disagree. It's like, you know, our best is subjective depending on what our values are, where we put our, our effort. Right. And so if you only want to be the best athlete ever. And you don't want to have healthy relationships. You don't want to you know, deal with your trauma. You don't want to be a better partner, a better parent, a better friend, a better family member. That makes total sense. But I'd argue that I feel like most people deep down into their core do value other human beings. And they, they realize that they feel better when they have, if you're an introvert or an extrovert, you feel better when you have deep connections, you know, rooted in love, rooted in, you know, um, a sort of soul connection with people. And you, you just can't get that if you only focus on yourself running all the time or, or, or any endurance sport it could be cycling, could be, you know, whatever. And I think that it does, like you said, it just takes experience. You have to sort of hit rock bottom. You have to realize how disconnected you are. And I think it, it takes a certain amount of trauma and realization of that trauma to say to yourself and look at yourself and be like, look, I still want to pursue this. This is definitely a passion. I love this. But if this is the only piece that defines my entire identity. If I don't, you know, 
<laughs> take myself to therapy or work on myself as a partner, or work on myself as a human being when this is gone and it will leave because we age, everyone mm-hmm. ages, right? We, we might, we might still run, but we certainly won't compete right, right at that level as we age. And when you lose that, 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 that dopamine from being able to be at the top, from being in articles, from being featured on magazines, those kind of things, you lose that identity of being like so-and-so the sponsored pro runner, right? So-and-so the mountain athlete. And when you lose that and you don't have your own identity steeped in who you are and your own, you know, just sort of, I don't know, internal sort of just alignment, you pretty much lose yourself, right? You just absolve into this nothingness. And I think that is when an even deeper crash into loneliness or depression or anxiety can occur because it's, it's pretty much like this dark night of the soul that comes out. And most people are left with this really sort of, um, I don't know, just frail, uh, structure of a human being because they've spent the majority of, of really impactful years in their teens, twenties, and thirties only pursuing this one thing because they thought it was going to make them happy, mm-hmm. you know? And I'd love, you know, it's interesting when you brought up high school, cause that's really when it, it clicked for me in my brain. Like, um, I was a, you know, super, uh, competitive baseball player my entire life. My whole family is a baseball family. And I was recruited out of high school, you know, played all this stuff to like go to college and then play major league baseball. And it was like my, I think my sophomore year of high school is when I I finally felt that it became a job. Like I remember when I was a kid and I was in little league, like I was a great player. I was on a a world series team in Arizona and, and I just, but I loved the game. Like I would go out with bubble gum in my mouth and like, you know, my shoes were probably not tied correctly, but like, it was just like, I loved being out there every time I was out on the field. Like it took me sort of maybe away a little bit from the struggles at home or the struggles at school. And and I just loved being out there with my friends and playing baseball. And as I got older, the reason it became a job was because I became attached to performance. I became attached to, oh, I got to perform this way. I got to do this to be seen by these scouts. I have to do this because I am so-and-so like the baseball player. And that's how I define myself. And it really wasn't until I had, um, I had an AP calculus professor uh, my senior year. I transferred schools. I went from a Catholic school that was private to a, a public school. And uh, I, I was exposed to like music and arts and science and a lot of different diversity. And this, uh, this calculus professor, his name was Mr. Packard. I'll never forget what he wrote in my yearbook. He said, uh, baseball players only do one thing. He's like, you could do many. And uh, he wrote that in my yearbook. And I like thought about it and I was like, man, you know, my whole idea of what I'm going to do in college was just like be an athlete, you know, live the athlete college life, which, which I did to an extent. But I think that and a lot of other experiences change how I approach my college days. Cause when I went to college, I was like, I also want to work in a lab. Like I want to, you know, play music. I want to study these things. And I didn't probably put as much time into baseball as I would have, if I just would have been focused on that. But I feel, you know, like I have a lot more of an enriched life because of it. You know, thankfully I had a family that supported that. They weren't just like, no, no. You know, I think, I think they questioned it a little bit when I like kind of was taking some time away from the game. They're like, are you sure you want to do this? Like there's a lot of future here. And once I told them why they're like, okay, we get it, you know? But I think a lot of people don't have families that, you know, are that sort of fluid. A lot of times there's a lot of pressure and and a lot of times that plays into, you know, how we view ourselves when we're younger, especially around like middle school, high school age, when we start to get really competitive in a sport, right? Can you speak to that and how, you know, just the psychology of like our family dynamic plays a role into like what we identify with as athletes? Because I'm sure as you work with many, you know, athletes yourself, like, is that something you get into? Like, you know, like, how did you get into the sport? Like, what, what was it? What was the relationship like with your mother, your father, your caregivers? You know, like, do you have a healthy relationship with this sport or were you kind of like, this is what you got to do, you know, because we're living vicariously through you? Uh, I think I was lucky. Yeah. I mean, I have, like I said, my dad was, he, he coached me in high school. Um, he was intense, but it was never in a way that I felt like it wasn't my choice. Like he definitely made it always feel like it was my decision, but his approach was like, if you're going to do this, he just would say like, you've got to do your best. Like that's all I care is your best. And, and my interpretation of that is like, your best is always accessible, right? Like best doesn't mean this is the only thing that matters. It means best with a, what, you know, can compare, I don't know, like whatever the situation is while balancing other things that are important. Sure. I will say when I reflect a little bit, I don't know that this was something that was enforced on me. And I have two brothers who both run. I have a twin brother who also is a big athlete. And he also ran at Carolina. Um, And that was a good, I think that was a good situation because 
we're obviously twins the same age, but we're, he's a boy, I'm a girl. So we didn't compete against each other. It felt like a very healthy, um, I don't know, teammate, sibling rivalry. Cause otherwise it would have been tough on him because I'm such a better athlete than he is, but <laughs> it worked out fine. Uh, but so, so in college though, I remember like, even in high school, I think I saw that sometimes I would get a lot of passes for being a good athlete. Like mm-hmm. it never was in force on me by anyone or suggested that I was smart or that I could school could be something important for me. It was always just like, Oh, well, as long as you're, I don't know, getting decent grades and they, my parents never put any pressure on me to, to do well in school. In college, I went to an amazing university and I was very much like the second I walked in there encouraged to, take the easiest classes and here, here are the teachers that aren't hard so that, you know, you, cause it's hard to be a, a three sport athlete at a division one university that I probably wasn't academically prepared to be at. Uh, nothing shady that ever happened, but was just very much encouraged to take the smooth road, you know, let's major in communications and don't take, let's do this in five years. You don't need to graduate in four years, take the lowest load possible. And our head coach at the time would say things like, every Monday we had a team meeting and every Monday he, they would say things like, uh, you, you guys are student or you guys are athlete students. You're not student athletes. Like you just need to get C's C's get degrees. That's all that matters. And so it was like, I just, and I thought that was normal. You know, I just was, you know, going to same as you said about it being a job. I was like, I'm here to do one thing and that's to run three seasons out of the year. We're training year round. I'm a team captain. Like they're counting on me. Um, and it was still an amazing experience. And I still fully believe that sports have more to teach us than like, you're going to learn in most classrooms. And I don't mean to make my coaches sound terrible. They weren't, I, my distance coach was a wonderful person, very much impacted my life in a positive way. I learned how to be a leader. I learned how to be a teammate. I learned how to work hard. I learned a lot of skills that you can't learn in the classroom, but I went a very large part of my life thinking that I wasn't like very smart. And then I go back to grad school and you know get a scholarship and had a 4.0. And I'm like, Oh, actually I'm really smart. Like, why did no one ever tell me this? Or I really like learning. Like once I took classes that were challenging instead of just like, here's what you need to pass and get a degree in five years. Um, I, and I feel kind of robbed of that. So that's like one thing I look back on and reflect, like, I don't think it was in a very intentional negative way, but I was certainly encouraged to prioritize the skill ability that I had over other things in a way that like made me feel like other people didn't notice things about me that maybe were also great that I could pursue that I just never thought about. And so I I think about that when I think I'm very good at my job. I think that uh, I, I love psychology. I, something that I wish that I knew I loved earlier because I like playing catch up, but it's, it's just unfortunate to, to maybe indirectly think that this is the only thing you have to offer. Kind of like you were saying, when I think I have a lot more to offer and like, Nobody really ever pointed that out. <laughs> I don't think it was like in a negative way of like, you're only a runner, but it was at the expense of like, Hey, you're getting faster. You're winning races. That's all we need from you. Do whatever you need right. to do otherwise. And that that's kind of unfortunate when I think back on it, I, I do feel a little bit robbed of that experience. I really appreciate you bringing that up. Uh, and I completely agree. I think it relates to like the idea of elder wisdom. So, you know, coaches just like parents have a like distinct, severe influence on young minds, right? Specifically from like ages five to 22, 23, even beyond, right? Because you look up to them as being like the person that knows more than you, right? They're the coach, you're the athlete, or they're the teacher, you're the student, or you're the parent, you're the child. And I think I really have a lot of empathy for people that have had coaches. And again, you know, we only know what we know in the moment. So a lot of these coaches, they are really thinking that they're looking out for the best interests of the athlete because that's just what they know. That's what they were taught from their coaches and their mentors. And for me, like if I was a coach and I've coached some elite uh, runners in, in ultra running, you know, the main thing is like, like I will coach you to be the best runner. I think I can possibly coach you to be, but not at the sacrifice of the human you want to be, mm-hmm. you know? And, and I think like, I think as coaches in sport, you know, we really have to understand that people are going to have lives after this sport. And, and a lot of times we get so attached to performance because as, as a coach or as a, as a, you know facilitator of someone's achievements too, you get some of that praise, you know, it's like, okay, this, this coach is winning national championships. Their, their, their runners are winning races, you know, but I think you can have, you can teach good athletes, you can raise good humans and they can be competitive, but you can also instill in them an intrinsic value for who they are outside of the sport, 
namely you have a lot more to offer and you are offering it to earth. You know, you're helping people, you're doing all these things. Not that running wasn't a catalyst for that. Not that it wasn't a vehicle for that. It's, it's obviously influential in your life. And as you said, you, you learned a ton of stuff from sports. So did I, like the amount of people skills I have because playing baseball, basketball, football, and all these things, you know, th- those are, those are amazing things. But I will say it wasn't until I started to like really invest in education and and really the turning point for me was being surrounded by people my age that weren't athletes. Mm -hmm. You know, like I was around musicians or artists or just nerds. I'm a huge nerd. So I was around like nerds that like didn't play a sport and they were just like, Oh man, that's cool. You do that. Like, do you just want to like play these video games or like, do you want to like read this like Shakespeare stuff, you know, or do you want to like go paint something or play some music? And it wasn't until I had this like really multicultural diversity in my surroundings at my peer level that I was like, I don't just want to be known for like hitting a ball with a stick, you know, like I, I'm breaking that down, but I just, I want to, I want to, I got more stuff to offer. I think I learned that at a young age and, and I feel really fortunate for that. I still have had an ego attachment to athletics because as you brought up, you do get viewed in society a little differently, right? Specifically in school, like, you know, people would always associate me with being like this athlete, this like, you know, very like athletic person. And I got like special treatment for that, you know, in most avenues of my life, really, you know, whether it was like being invited to parties, going to prom when I was a freshman, you know, stuff like that. And I understand like that, that dynamic of, of high school hierarchy, but I do think it's important to recognize the privilege in that, which you brought up because it did set a precedence for the rest of my life. Like sort of this entitlement of if I continue to be this athlete, I will continue to be praised, which will feed my ego. And ultimately I'll be happy. You know, this is how, this is how I'll be a happy person. And it wasn't until like I got things that I wanted in that respect where I was like, man, I'm still struggling in my personal relationships. I still don't feel stable in love. I still don't think I love myself completely. You know, uh, I still have a, you know, shaky relationship with people in my family. And I like had to, you know, it wasn't probably until like five or six years ago where I realized this. And I was like, I have to start investing time into these things because I I can go and train my ass off every day, which I'll do. But if I don't also like, we can talk about training, train my emotional state, like my relational states, like how I, you know, view myself, my self-talk, how I relate to others. Like I'm not going to have any of these tools when I leave the sport or when I become less competitive. And ultimately for my values, like, like relationships and love and like being a good member of a community and giving back to society that that is actually more important to me now in my age than being the best athlete. You know, I still want to compete in different things because I'm competitive as heck, which you are too, but I'm okay with balancing it. You know, I think we have all these buckets we put our effort and energy into. Right. And I remember going to, uh, couples counseling. Um, this is a couple years ago. And the couples counselor asked me, she's like, you know, you have your hobbies, your sports, you know, you have your work, you have like your family, you have your relationship. And she kind of put all these buckets. Right. And she's like, you know, there's, there's the adult you and there's the inner child you, and you put different like sort of energies or efforts into these buckets. And she's like, it's not until you're going to be able to sort of balance all of these that you'll feel fulfilled. You know, if you put a bunch in one that might give you a boost for a little bit, but you'll feel disconnected from your relationships or your love and your life. You won't have successful intimacy, right? If you put too much in the relationship and not enough in your hobbies, well, you'll lose a sense of self. You'll lose what you're passionate about, which is also unhealthy. And I think it, it was like that. I'm a very visual person. So when she explained it like that, I was like, okay, I do need to like consciously put effort into these various parts of my life. And I just honestly started enjoying what I was doing more again too. Cause I got to a point with running where like, Oh man, I have like 20 miles today. Like I'm exhausted. I'm tired, you know? And now it's just like, yeah, I kind of run when I feel like it. I'm not, you know, that's still the level you're at, but I, I just, I feel a lot better. And I, I do think that you can do that at the elite level and hopefully have healthier relationships with yourself and with others. And um, I don't know if that resonates with you, if that's kind of what it's been your experience. Yeah, totally. And I mean, I, yeah, I think that one thing I would want to make sure I say directly is uh, you can, like you said, you can have both. You can have that balance and have a healthy um, lifestyle where you're investing in your values mutually and still compete at a high level. I still do it. I still, I'm running a race on Friday. I very much want to win that race. Um, I've worked really hard, but it's not, it, it, yeah, I don't want to give off the impression that you can't have both. You absolutely can have both. And that's what 
I actually like that visual too of like, I think about it, yeah, as these different cups and I'm like filling some of them and maybe, maybe there's times when some do demand a little bit more attention. Yes. But over time they should kind of level out and even out. Um, it's, I don't know why it's so ingrained in us to think that to be the, and I think maybe people can't relate in terms of being like an athlete, but like careers, I see that a lot. I see that with my, my dad, my parents, like how they've treated their careers at times have been like, that's the most important thing. And like to do this and crush this and be the best at this, I might have to take too much. I might have to take some out of this bucket. And like, again, that's fine for a little bit of time, but it's not sustainable for a long period of time. Um, I think that, balancing and investing in each I've seen like, again, maybe, maybe thinking more in the performance setting, I've seen myself willing to take more risks in the performance setting. Again, like seeing that counterintuitive, like to not really necessarily think that performance would increase with this more balanced approach. But that's what I've seen with myself is like when I can detach my own ego and worth from the outcome, which comes from attaching my ego and worth to other places that are more stable, like, my friendships, like uh, my who I am as a person, like how I treat people in my life, that kind of thing. It's like you are more willing to take risks in a performance or work setting because the devastation that would happen if it didn't happen is not going to be there. Like my my new my when I went through this like come to, like I said come to Jesus moment with myself and have redefined my lifestyle and my values. Um, my mantra is like hold it lightly, where it's it's like, and I mean that in terms of mostly in terms of like my work and my, my like performance as an athlete is I get so attached in the past, so attached to things of like, I need this to happen. I need to write this book and I need it to be a bestseller. I need to sell this many copies or I need to, I have to win this race uh, on Friday. Like I have to, it's not an option not to. And it's like, when you hold things so rigidly, it's, it's like not worth the risk of it not happening. And the only way to hold things lightly and to not hold it so tightly is to have like other anchor points that are sustainable and consistent and make you more of the person you want to be rather than like you said, like it's so interesting. You talk to any professional athlete at any level and you talk about the highest highs and it's like, yeah, they're really high, but they never feel as great as you think they are. And they feel good for like a day. And then the next day you're like, well, how do I improve on that? Cause like now I just got to keep one up in it or it's never going to feel as good again. And it's like literally not reachable. It's why professional athletes like transitioning out of sport is probably the hardest psychological challenge that any athlete ever faces is, is like, yeah, I'm kind of going on a tangent, but you're right. Like chasing these highs attached to something so objective and so meaningless in some ways, it feels good in the moment, but it's not, it's, it's not sustainable and it's never what anybody thinks it's going to be long-term. Um, so yeah, having just like a, a baseline of like general happiness where I feel like pretty good all the time. And like, if I win a race, heck yeah, I want to win. I hope I do, but if I don't, that's okay. And I'm going to go back to my life and it's wonderful and balanced and I'll keep trying to run fast and win races, but it's not the only thing that matters. Yeah. I love that you say that. I, I remember we talked about this over the phone, but I hear a lot of people in the alternative community, like they'll have a great race and they'll say online, like, well, you know, I didn't, didn't have the race I wanted to. I'm not super happy with my performance, you know? Um, and, and let's say they did awesome. And I used to, I used to be one of those people. I used to say that, you know, if I come in third, fourth or fifth, which to the majority of human beings would be like their, you know, top performance and they, they love it. Right. And, and it wasn't until I sort of started to reframe that. It's like, I did the best I could with the conditions I got that day with what my body gave me, whether that was a drop or I finished in 10th or 20th or third or whatever, or one, you know, and I find almost it undercuts just showing up and competing when we, when we use inner dialogue like that, like, oh, you know, I didn't have the best day. I want. It's okay to under, to acknowledge like, Hey, you might have underperformed to your standard. But if we like, if that is what we tell people as soon as like, Hey, how was your race? Oh, you know, I underperformed. I, I don't really run like, you know, like I, like I wanted to, I feel like we're, we're sold those narratives because we live in such a perfectionist society. And if we had more acceptance, like you said, oh, I love that idea, like hold it lightly. You're just like, Hey, yeah, you know, I probably would have rather won, but I, I did great. And I felt like crap out there and I still finished. And you know, my, my, my partner and my family supported me and like saw them at aid stations, you know, like we, we kind of overlook that stuff too, when we're so focused between our own ears based on performance, because like you said, even if we were to have the best day ever and win that. Um, dopamine or that excitement, that happiness after it's very fleeting. 
it's, right. it's gone within a couple days or a couple weeks at most. Right. And then you're looking for the next dopamine hit. It's like this addiction. Well, I got to win this next race. I got to set this other record. And I wonder, is that, is this like a, a piece of the sort of ethos that uh, motivated you to write this book? And, or, and if it, if it was, or it wasn't like what motivated you to put so much work into, into writing this book and who is it for? I mean, yeah, totally. It's, I wanted, if I can help one person kind of have a healthier relationship with the sport, that's ideally what I want. I mean, on the other, on the other hand, what's super magical, I think I meant to say this earlier when I was talking about the different, um, different buckets that are important, but then also what we know as athletes, like transferable skills, it's my favorite word when it comes to mental skills, because all the stuff that we know about, um, dedication, loyalty, motivation, commitment. It's like, we learn that in the athletic setting and maybe we are somewhat neglecting the other areas of our life. But once we decide to invest in those, like when you can come to a relationship with that same mindset, or you can come to a job with that same mindset, like you have everything you need to be successful. It's just like the reframing. But I think one of the problems is, so yes, that is why I wrote the book. Um, that is my intention to give people more intentionality and, empowerment to like take back the control. Like you're not a prisoner of your mind. Like you get to decide what framework you're working from. So like put the energy into it. But when it comes to what you were just talking about, like a lot of it is just the culture of sports and the way that things like the way that the system operates sometimes, like maybe I'm just saying this because I'm kind of irritated at something uh, (laughs) for, as an example, I'm racing Friday. They have like a pre-race preview they ranked who they thought was going to win and they predicted me as first. Awesome. Cool. Thanks for the shout. But the blurb they wrote was, I, I had so many issues with it as like a practitioner of like, this is not the message that we want. Like kind of like you were saying when, when a great athlete maybe falls short and then sends this message that's perpetuating this mindset of like, they said something like uh, that this was my make or break attempt at a hundred miles and that it's my race to lose. And my opinion is like, when you say that this race is someone's to lose, that means that anything other than winning is losing right. anything. And even if you win, you didn't win. You just like did what people thought that you were expecting. And it's almost like anything other than winning is worthless also. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And I, and I like had so many issues and this is ultra running. Like this is such a, like, I'm not a big deal. This is a very small scale, but it's similar to a lot of things we saw in the Olympics of like, how can we make it about that? Like, how can we make someone believe, how can we perpetuate this message that this is like, that someone is going to tell me that this is my make or break race. That's not how I'm approaching it. And I don't think anything other than winning is a loss. So why are you sending me that message? And why are you sending that message to the sport? And so I think you're right that the way that we talk about performance just as a system has to change. And I think that a lot of that came to light during the Olympics with people you know, like Simone Biles and um, Naomi Osaka, like people stepping up and saying like, my mental health is more important. I think yes. that we are learning to speak differently about performance. But the thing that's so funny too, is I'm like, listen, if performance and outcomes in sports was as predictable as people sometimes act like it is, we wouldn't care anyway. So why are we like pushing this like expected performances and expected outcomes so much? Like, this team, this team should have won. So we're so pissed that they didn't. And it's because they did this wrong and this wrong. It's like, if that were how it worked and we just could look at data and say, here's the better team or here's the better runner, like no one would care about sports. Um, So it's kind of like in some ways, uh, I don't know, hypocritical or it doesn't make sense. It doesn't add up, but that maybe that's because I'm irritated personally at something that was a message that was, and luckily I work in this field. So I have this impermeable wall here. I'm like, your crap's not getting in here. But there's other athletes who don't have that. And like, we can't talk about sports like this. We can't talk about results like this. It's not the message we need to be sending. And I I work with so many, probably my, uh, the biggest proportion of my client load is high schoolers. And the messages that these high school kids are getting sent at 15 and 16 years old is unreal. Um, So yeah, I think there's a lot of work that needs to be done on our dialogue around sports in general. Oh yes. Thank you so much. Oh man. You just said so many, so much gold, golden stuff right there. I, I completely agree. And I love how you brought up high school students at the end, because I was going to say who that messages damages the most outside of the athlete. Cause it's, it's not in, in the community is the younger woman that's looking at that article saying that that's what I have to be like to be successful or to be noticed or to be worthy, you know? And that's, that's the main thing that I have a problem with, especially with like how the media and how society puts pressure on 
on kids to perform. And, and I'm all about like, you know, you should like, you're racing to win. No doubt about it. You're showing up the line trying to, but you're, but you're the difference in your mentality now from probably 10 years ago is that if you don't win or you DNF or you have a bad day, you're not going to lose a sense of yourself. You still know who you are. You're still giving back to a greater purpose in yourself. You're still loved by many. You still love many. And it's not the only thing. Your your performance isn't invested in it. And when you brought up Simone Biles and Naomi Osaka, great examples. I was going to bring those, those two up is that for the first time in probably the history of the Olympics, two super high-powered female athletes were like, yeah, this is not working. No. And I'm going to take a day off in the middle. And everyone was like, you're not winning medals for your country and this and that. And I'm like, dude, this is probably the most patriotic thing someone could do because these people, these women are standing up for so many women across the country and, and men, everybody that like might go into a sport, literally having a panic attack or being super depressed and saying that I still have to do this because my worth is in the performance. My worth is in the medal. And it's not, you could win 50 gold medals and and have all these mental health things and be super deprived as a human being and never experience deep, profound love, which (laughs) in my mind is ultimately way worth more than winning a race, you know, but you can have both is is the nice thing. Um, So I really appreciate you saying that. And then I wanted to talk about younger minds because I feel like, you know, when I, I coached um, women and men in ultra running and, and I, one of my first questions would be like, how's your relationship with your body image? How's your, you know, mental, emotional health? Like how, how are your cycles? How's your period? Like with my female athletes. So knowing a lot of things intimately, so I could like, you know, tell as a coach, like some people train better when they're on the cycle. Some people need to take time off and relax. And especially like your mental and emotional health. Like if you have a fight with your partner, uh, some people train better during that week or, or some people just need to relax and focus on their life too. Right. But I think a lot of times, you know, these younger kids and I was sold these images too, like, you know, it's all about performance. So that's when these sort of like areas of our shadow peak up and then we're just like, we start to not eat food. Or we start to, you know, control how our body looks by, you know, eating or overtraining or whatever. And these lead to, you know, all sort of hosts of physical and mental and emotional ailments. But we do that because we've been shown that this is what you need to do to be the best, to, to perform at your best. And, and we talked about that a little bit over the phone is like, often that can be successful for a couple of years, even a little bit more than that for a lot of people, right? But then you notice that people start to break down, you know, as long as they're not ingesting, you know, other things that like, you know, make you able to sort of super physiologically like be, you know, higher from your normal levels. But we're talking about baseline human being that's a really good athlete. If they, you know, start to eat less and train more or, you know, sort of have other sort of eating disorders or other sort of, you know, uh, physical image, you know, judgments that not only plays a part into their athletic performance. And let's say they, they are successful with that. It usually compounds their investment into that dysfunction because they're having success. And so it's this, it's this feedback loop, right? It's this sort of, I would say negative feedback loop, but it's viewed as positive. We're like, Oh, just get thinner and thinner and thinner. And I get, I run more and more and more and I, I get a PR, I get a PR and it, and it compounds it until boom, the train hits, like it's off the tracks. Like you get a hip fracture and you're 22, right? You have, you know, uh, your bone density is low. Like you have all these other things, right? Um, and sometimes you can't physically tell just by looking at someone. Some some people hide those disorders. Some people don't, but some people hide them physically because our biochemistry and our biology very well. So it's it's not as easy as looking at someone and saying, well, that, that person, you know, is struggling with, you know, body image or food or whatever. Because a lot of people that, you know, look very fit and muscular struggle with body image too. Yeah. And I imagine that's a part of the component on what we need to be healing, right? As athletes and specifically in endurance sports, but this exists in all sports, you know, body image and like, where do we start from that as a culture? I know it's a big question, but like, it, does it start as parents? Like when we have conversations with our children and empower them to sort of like love themselves and, and be like, look, I, if you love being an athlete, we're going to love you just as we're going to love you to the same if you, if you weren't, but like, you're not only an athlete, right? And you don't, you should never sort of sacrifice your physical, your mental, emotional health for achievement. Like, do we need to be having those conversations that early? Um, is it up to like the, the coaching structure, you know, or in middle school and high school, like where do we start to, to change this, this psyche that's, that's kind of perpetuated most athletics, you know, since, since we really started competing and even more so when, you know, media became a thing, like you get famous on TV, you got a lot of Instagram followers, you get a lot of money contracts, that kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think I said this to you that, um, 
one of my mentors and, and professors in grad school was, she's a sports psychologist, but was one of the leading people dealing with specifically with like eating disorders and body image issues. And you're right. It's difficult when the results can be positive for a period of time. Like it's, it's hard to convince um, athletes, especially young women sometimes to notice those behaviors, refrain from those behaviors um, when it can productively impact performance. Like I've seen that and I've seen people also see athletes that they assume are struggling with that. And instead of feeling sad or, or being concerned, it's like they're cheating, you know, like they're cheating because they're doing that. Not like, wow, something's really wrong that someone needs to step in and help. It is a problem. I think that uh, it goes back to, and this is kind of what I asked this exact same question to my professor, you know, how do you, how do you, how do you interfere with that? When, at least at that point in time, if their number one priority is performance and it is helping performance, like how do you have that conversation? And she mentioned values. And it's again, goes back to our conversation before of the earlier on that we can convince, not convince, uh, help young people see their multidimensionality dimensionality, and to invest in multiple aspects of themselves, um, the more like that belief system takes root early. Like, you know, for, for me, like, and maybe if I had been encouraged to like also care about school and study things that interested me and think about what I wanted to do for a living when I was done running, like maybe I would have invested my time in other things that I think would have helped me feel like not just an athlete. Um, because when that's the case, it's, it's the same as anything, you know, when you think about overtraining, when you think about isolating yourself to just get in the training all the time at the expense of friendships, if you, um, like I did basically choose an athletic career over an academic career. If you do all those things, you, you're prioritizing too much, this one part of your identity. So, so same with, um, you know, body image and eating disorder type stuff. If you're prioritizing performance and outcomes, you're going to be willing to do anything, of course. But if you have already kind of committed to this idea of a whole self, then you can say, well, yeah, I understand that like people are doing that. I understand it does have a positive impact on results for a period of time. But one of my other values is I want to be a parent one day. And like, there's, you know, many women who have gone so far down that road in endurance sports that maybe that's not an option anymore. Or I want to, I want to perform well now as a high school or collegiate athlete, but I also want to be running in 10 years and I need to protect my body. I I don't want to get injured. So when you, that's how she framed it to me is like, once you can bring up these other things that are important and then, you know, even just the behavior itself, um, there's a lot of shame. So people sometimes will isolate themselves from having meals with loved ones or, you know, just really retreating even more. And so it, it's the same problem of just overemphasizing the athlete identity at the expense of everything else that's important. And I think starting young with people to, and it's hard, right? You see a talented athlete or you see someone talented in anything, music, whatever, when they're young. And it's like, gosh, I watched, um, the Tiger Woods documentary. I don't know if you've seen that one yet recently. Mm-hmm. And it was heartbreaking. Yeah. Like yeah. you see someone that's a crazy talent at a young age. It's hard to not want to help them reach their potential. Of course, like mm-hmm. you should do that. Help give them every resource you can, but not at the expense of every other part of their being where that's like right. the only thing that's fostered. Um, and then it makes it easier for them to make decisions that perpetuate that. So that was kind of long winded, but I think starting the conversation of values and, and multidimensionality really young so that athletes are constantly making, not even just athletes, just young people are making decisions that are investing in all those pieces of themselves instead of over-prioritizing one. Most definitely. And I appreciate how you just said this is most people we're speaking about athletes because this is primarily what the book is written towards, but it, it, it applies to everyone. You know, if we just take the athlete mindset of achievement, you can apply it to work towards starting a business towards pursuing academic career. And it can be the exact opposite of what you described, right. Versus like not being an athlete, but being so obsessed with like your career and your status that you, you're pursuing it the same way. Right. And, and the, the key thing that sticks out in my mind that you brought up is just diversification. Right. And if we just talk about like investments, like, you know, I, I got into investments like years ago, you know, doing my own thing. And like everyone that knew what they were talking about was just like, it's about diversifying your portfolio, you know, to, to risk management. And, and I'm sort of breaking this down into um, economics and it's more complex than that. But at the base level, it's like, if you put all your energy, all your effort into one stock and you could have heightened, you know, raise for two or three or five years, maybe even 10, maybe you can get lucky. Right. But at some point that thing is going to come down. Right. And the point is, is if you have all your emotional, physical, you know, mental investments into one thing, 
once that crashes, you're not left with much, mm-hmm. right? And the point is, is to sort of invest in, in, in many things. And specifically, you know, you have human connection, you have relationships, you have your work, you have your sport, maybe your sport is your work. So you, you know, maybe have a hobby on the outside, maybe you write, maybe you paint, maybe you draw something else that feeds your soul, you connect yourself with. I think one of the things I see a lot is a disconnection from our emotions, especially in endurance sports where we're, there's so much suffering. You know, you're, you're consistently told to put your head down and push through the pain, mm-hmm. which is really good in the sport. But in life, it's not the greatest because that, that a lot of times that creates someone that's super avoidant or super anxious and like doesn't handle emotions super well. Like what do you do when you get in a fight or you're pissed off or something? Well, I'm just going to shut down and go for a run because like, I don't want to deal with these feelings. You know, I don't want to communicate or explain. And I just wanted to bring that point up because a lot of times this relates back to sort of the eating disorder and body image stuff. If, if we develop these habits as adolescents, as children, and we get treatment for it and we treat the physical manifestations of these, a lot of times like the psychosocial and emotional stuff takes a lot longer to heal from. Right. So the amount of damage we can inflict on ourselves, and this is not to shame anyone because this is just to bring, bring enlightenment to it. But like the amount of damage we can inflict on ourselves for that two to five years of heightened athletic performance can sometimes take a lot longer to deal with, whether you go to therapy or have a professional such as yourself to work with them, you know? And I think like, you know, it's important to to talk to kids about that system of values. Be like, look, you, you might be able to, you know, benefit from this for, you know, X amount of years, but at some point it's going to catch up with you and you're going to have to do all this catching up, you know, to, to sort of be, to work on your emotional intelligence or your emotional capacity, you know, because you've been shutting that off and putting your head down so much and just competing and performing. So, um, I really, um, want to get into before we let you go your book and, and just like, you know, what are the contents in it? Like, what are people going to get out of it? What are like, let's say maybe the three or more big talking points that people can really, um, you know, gain from reading this. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of broken down. I guess, I guess the first thing I would say is it's called mental training for ultra running. So it is written in the context of ultra running, but most of the things talked about are applicable definitely to like any distance of, of running and, and really any sport or to life. Honestly, I've had that feedback a lot. And I'm like, yeah, I know it's, it's nice to be able to sometimes disguise just typical human behavior, understanding and like better like relationship with your brain and uh, like understanding of psychology and just general wellness, like in the context of, of sport sometimes, because people sometimes are more open to that idea, maybe than reading like a self-help book or something like that. Um, so I basically kind of distilled, uh, into 10, 10 chapters. I think it's eight mental skills that I think are most necessary to succeed at ultra distances. Again, these would be applicable to like a lot of different areas of life of life. So for example, like embracing discomfort, yeah. Learning to tolerate discomfort, whether it's physical or emotional or mental, um, to coexist with it, to cope with it, to recognize what kind of feedback you're using to make decisions, right? We think about in psychology, there's, there's, um, like our thoughts that lead to our feelings that lead to our behaviors and understanding that connection and understanding that there's always that process of like something causing us to react or take a certain action or behave in a certain way, whether it's on the race course or just in life and really understanding that connection. Um, anxiety, performance, pre-performance nerves, stuff like that. So yeah, understanding the nervous system, understanding, how our brains operate in terms of like thinking that it recognizes danger. I mean, a lot of it is just understanding the functionality of our brain and how we're behind in a lot of ways. Our brains have not caught up with like the world that we live in. And when you can understand uh, just like the literal like neuropsychology of that, you can understand some of the things that you experience as maybe unpleasant, like physiological sensations or what we label as emotions and understand why that's happening and kind of break that down and almost um, like, reverse engineer, I guess, to, to feel like you're more in control of that. Um, I'm trying to think of some of the other ones, like obviously dealing with discomfort, discomfort, dealing with setbacks and injuries, dealing with things not happening the way that you want to establishing a a healthy um, athlete identity relationship with the sport. But what I really wanted to do, and I guess I hope what sets the book apart and what my intention was, I didn't want to, it's filled with a lot of stories too, a lot of case studies, my own stories. Um, I interviewed like 20, the best athletes in the world at this sport. So a lot of their stories, so to make it entertaining, but what I didn't want to do was write a book where people were like, cool. Yeah, that makes sense. I see why that's important. How the heck do I 
do that? How the heck do I like be more confident? How do I, how do I like in, enhance my self-belief? So there's, I think 35 exercises throughout the book, like little worksheets or um, little tools to take into your life to work on that. If, if confidence mm-hmm. and self-belief is an issue, there's in that chapter two or three or four different ways to start working on that yourself. If it's more motivation or staying committed to something, there's exercises in that chapter. So I, I didn't really identify different talking points, I guess, but it's it's mostly just um, highlighting some major mental skills, again, that would be applicable anywhere. And then really giving like a concrete understanding of, of how that works, how that's happening in our brain, understand that. And then here's what you can do to work on it and change it. I really wanted it to be actionable and for people to feel like they were walking away with tools and not just like, well, that sounds great, but I don't know how to do that. So it's just like a, a great book that you read and then you forget about it. I hope that it's not that. I hope that it's something people are revisiting. Um, you know, everybody's going to have different challenges. So some people might really identify with the motivation chapter. Some people might really identify with the self-talk chapter. Um, and then, you know, at different points, you might be dealing with different things and have, have a resource for each. So that's what I tried to do. And I mean, the way that I look at it too is I don't have any new ideas. Like I'm very much like standing on the shoulders of giants with this book. I didn't make any of it up. So I also, if anything, like the reference list in that book is like, Oh my gosh, I have stacks of books over here of the books I read for that. And I feel like that was a big point I made too, was constantly referencing what, where I was getting these ideas from. So I'm not trying to take credit. Like if this is a chapter that someone really, really resonates with someone, here's 10 different other sources research data, like other things that could help you like really dive into this thing that might for you be what's going to make a big difference just in your life in general. I really appreciate how there's not, it's not just a book based on theory. You know, I feel like there's a lot of uh, self-help books out there that this, you know, sort of falls in into the category of like, you know, how to work on things and, and be a better athlete, a better person, a better runner, but they don't really give you any steps to how to do those things. They're just like, Oh, you know, you should want to be a better blah, blah, blah. And you're just like, okay, great idea, you know? And so I really appreciate that you have that in there. I think that's, that's probably where the value of the book is, is because not only do you have this research and this, and a lot of like, you know, um, uh, quoted stuff from other amazing, you know, authors and, and people researching in the field, but also like, here are some steps if you want to work on this avenue, you know, of, yeah. of your life. And, and I, I really appreciate that. And where can people go, Addy, to buy a copy? Where's, where's the best place to send them? Uh, it's for sale on Amazon. So super easy. Yeah, there's a Kindle version and the hard copy version. Okay, awesome. I will throw a link to that in the description. And then if people want to work with you or connect with you, what's the, are you accepting clients? Like what's the best way to reach out to you if someone wants to work with you? Yeah, totally. Uh, yeah, my private practice is called Strive Mental Performance, and that it's at strivementalperformance.com. Has like more about what I do, my background, and then there's a, yeah a way to reach out or even just schedule a free uh, initial consultation to see if it's something that might fit. Amazing. Is there anything that you might want to leave people with uh, before we close? Just you know, something that's been on your mind that it has it can be about some of the stuff we talked about, or it can be about something completely different. Uh, I mean, no other than honestly, just continuing to like push this field. It's, I have, I mean, I have worked with a sports psychologist. I go to a therapist once a week, every week, like do not ever miss it. Um, and I, you know, maybe in some ways was a skeptic 10 years, seven or eight years ago. And I just, what I tell everybody is like, I, I don't know if I said this to you, but when you think about, again, we're talking in the athletic realm, but certain, certain things are capped, right? Like our, my, my physical ability, the top end of it is somewhat capped by genetics. Like when I was exposed to training, when my coaches were like, et cetera, age, whatever, um, talent levels, just ability, like a lot of different things can maybe limit some people, but in terms of utilizing our minds, everybody has the exact same amount of potential. Like nobody is more advantaged than anyone else. And it is, in my opinion, makes the biggest difference in performance, no matter what performance you're talking about. Again, relationships, before I got work settings, athletic settings, doesn't matter. So I, I always just try and push, like, if you're not getting help, like I'm never pushing myself, just, just reach out to somebody. There are so many wonderful practitioners just in general therapy and what I do, which is uh, mental, mental performance training, sports psychologists. Like this is something that everybody needs in their life. And I truly, truly firmly believe it and stand by it in my own life. And I have seen it make the most drastic impact on my performance, my work performance, my relationships, my happiness than anything I've done in my life. Um, so I just always like don't underestimate 
the the power and benefit of investing in like your mental and emotional um, wellness, basically. Most definitely. I can echo that. Like I've been in therapy since I was 23 and have gotten through spurts of not going. And it's definitely like I've gone off track a little bit in my life and fully a believer of sports psychology and therapy, you know, for relational and and self-work too. Do you only work with like elite athletes or if someone just anyone that's an athlete, they can reach out to you um, and work with you? Yeah. So my, my, um, I, I'm not a therapist or a psychologist. I decided not to go that route. So I don't, I don't work with anything that would be considered maybe more clinical. Um, so mm-hmm. like, like extreme anxiety or severe depression or, um, you know, bipolar sort of things that are like mental health disorders, obviously any, they just kind of general anxiety, maybe like slums kind of general stuff that people deal with. I, I am qualified to deal with, and it's mostly in the athletic setting, but no, I work with anything from professional athletes who do this as their job to high school athletes that are competing in college, to high school athletes that aren't, to beginner athletes, it doesn't matter. And and again, it's the beautiful thing is that all these skills are transferable. So it's it's not like a and I preach that. So you know you don't have to be a professional athlete to to benefit from working with um, someone certified in mental performance training or sports psychology. It's it's definitely applicable to anybody and will improve I think anybody's life like dramatically. All right. I agree completely. Well, Addy, thank you so much for coming on the show and joining us and sharing your wisdom. And I can't wait for people to go out and buy your book and read it. And uh, is there any way, can they get in touch with you, I guess, through your company or is it something where um, you know people can follow you on social media? Where would they look for that to sort of you know hear more about what you're writing if it's outside of the book? Yeah. Um, I'm really only active on Instagram, which is just at Addie Bracey. And then otherwise, yeah, most, most stuff about me happening in my professional life is on uh, my website. Okay. Amazing. Well, good luck on your race this weekend. I hope you have a great time out there. You are running run rabbit. Mm-hmm. Is that what's going on? Okay. Yeah. yeah. For anyone that's not an ultra, that's a hundred miler in steamboat Springs, Colorado. So it's going to be going to be a fun one. That was the first one I tried. I think I told you that. Yeah. It'll be an adventure if nothing else. So I'm excited for it. Most definitely. Well, I mean, you, you got, you said, you said so many amazing things and I really appreciate the perspective you brought just from, you know, the level of athlete you are, but also just your awareness, you know, I'm sure it's grown over the years, but you know, you're, you're sort of a gift to the sport and to athletes in general, because, you know, you've come around the other side of that sort of entrapment of, performance of being so caught in that identity and you're still having success and, and obviously have had these successes in other areas of your life, um, which arguably might even be more important. So thank you so much, Addy, for sharing that with us and guys, please go buy the book, go, go check it out, uh, write a review on Amazon if you read it. And thank you so much for joining us, Addy Bracey. Yeah. Thank you for having me.